we are going to move into our topical series now, uh, looking at uh, different aspects to do with what we typically refer to as the Christmas story. Now, we're all very familiar with the Christmas narrative, aren't we? Well, you know, there's a lot more to that which the Bible says than actually we tend to often appreciate. Um, so the, the subject for this morning study is why shepherds? You know, why did God choose to send angels to a group of shepherds on the hillside just outside of Bethlehem? But let me make a statement that I think we're probably all in agreement with, uh, and that is that there are no meaningless details in the Bible. You know, everything that God does is for a purpose. So let's just come back to the question. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God choose of all the people that he could have chosen to reveal this baby laying in a manger, God incarnate? Why a group of shepherds? Was it just a random choice or was there a purpose. Well, again, if everything God does is for a purpose and there are no meaningless details, then it wasn't just a random choice, that there was a reason that these shepherds were chosen. Now, some will argue and will tell you that it's because um, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the mighty and you know, so on, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. And that, there may be some truth in that. Uh, others will give you other uh, accounts and, and reasons why they think the, che- the shepherds were chosen. But most of them neglect some of the uh, little nuggets that we find when we dig into Scripture. Um, so let's just have a look. I mean, first of all, one of the things that maybe would come as a surprise is that at that time in Israel, shepherds were considered the outcasts of society. You know, it suggested that that, as we said a moment ago, is why God chose to reveal to them this incredible gift that he was giving to the world. Now, how much they understood at that point, we don't know. But clearly, we do have that statement in First Corinthians that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So that may be partially the answer. The Mishnah uh, advised against a number of professions. Uh, so this is like the, the Jewish uh, advice book for them. Uh, and it included that of a shepherd. So in other words, don't become a shepherd. It's one of those professions that it advised not to get into. Uh, this is actually what it uh, states. A man should not teach his son uh, to be an ass driver or a camel driver or a barber or a sailor, a sailor or a herdsman, there you go, uh, or a shopkeeper, for their craft is the craft of robbers. So they had this reputation of not being honourable, um, that they would just take and steal whatever they can. Um, and so because of that, shepherds were often despised. But the Bible paints a very different picture of shepherds. A- and you need to appreciate that it's the God of the Bible that chose to send the angels to speak to the shepherds, to reveal to them this babe lying in a manger. Of course, in Psalm 23, God himself is described as a shepherd. Now, God wouldn't have chosen something that he had little regard for uh, and used that to describe himself. So clearly you see the the disregard for shepherds and so on was purely uh, a biased thing on behalf of man and individuals at that time. Um, God clearly has no uh, regard uh, or no disregard towards shepherds. In fact, some of Israel's greatest national heroes, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and David, 
were all shepherds. God promised that he would someday shepherd Israel. He spoke of them as his sheep and he as a shepherd that would lead and guide them. Of course, the work of Israel's future Messiah is that of a shepherd, uh, given to us in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Jesus, of course, described himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So despite public opinion, God's view of shepherds is clearly not the same as man's. Now, the question we come back to, though, is but why did God choose shepherds? You know, and it wasn't a PR exercise, which is what some people have mentioned. You know, we are told uh, in Luke 2, verse 17, I believe it is, um, that although they, uh, when they, when they heard this news and everything else, that they made known abroad what they had seen. So they did share it, but it didn't seem to go all that far. And the excitement quickly kind of petered out because the news certainly didn't make it as far as Jerusalem, which was only about eight miles up the road, because it wouldn't be for another two years or so that Herod would hear about this newborn king. If the news that the shepherds had started uh, sharing abroad about this this king they found that had been born in their town, uh, that they'd visited in the manger, uh, if they had been sharing that and it had been published abroad, well, clearly Herod would have got to hear of it and probably would have intervened before he did. But it's not until the visit of the Magi, which we'll look at in some more detail next week, which we believe occurred anything up to two years later. And we'll give you the reasons next week for that. Um, but Herod at that point decides he's going to act. He's very uh, uh, unhappy, very uneasy at this talk of the king of Israel because Herod was an Idumean. He was from Edom and uh, was a Roman appointee. He was sitting, as it were, on the throne of Israel, but he wasn't the rightful king, and he knew that. And that's why when he hears about one who is being born king of the Jews, obviously he's very troubled by that. Let's just read the scripture uh, and see what uh, the Bible says. Then we'll come back and we'll look at some of the details. We read, it came to pass in those days that they went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Just a couple of points to highlight there. Firstly, that both Mary and Joseph were related of the the family of David. They have the family tree, we have it given to us in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, the, the genealogy of the family, and it all goes back to David uh, and so on. So um, this is why when they had to go back to their hometowns, they go to Bethlehem because that was where ultimately their family had come from. And clearly there was still family there. The other thing that's to mention is at this point, despite what we've seen and it's actually told us in Matthew's gospel that Joseph was really concerned when he found out that Mary was pregnant He didn't want to put her away, as it were, to to break off this engagement. Um, But even at the time they head down to Bethlehem from Nazareth, where they were living, um, at that point, Mary was still his espoused wife. In other words, they weren't yet married. Now, uh, espousal in a Jewish uh, culture is far more of a commitment than just an engagement in our culture, but it's that type of idea. So they were engaged, 
But obviously, Mary's heavily pregnant as they make this journey. And we read in verse six, that, uh, and it was so that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Whatever else we draw from this passage, we clearly get an impression that Mary understood that there was more going on here than just what was observed on the surface. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Why shepherds? Why did God reveal through the angels this incredible event that had taken place and send these shepherds to go and visit Joseph, Mary and this newborn baby? And of course, Mary ponders these things. She recognizes there's something deeper. There's something more significant in this visit. So who were the shepherds? <clears throat> well, question again, why did God choose to send his angels to them? And what significance did they have? And what does the Bible really say? And remember, of course, that tradition makes the word of no effect. Mark 7.13, Jesus reminds us of that simple fact. Uh, what I would say is that most of the things that people typically believe about Christmas is not true. Almost everything, in fact, that you find that is uh, on Christmas cards and so on, uh, the typical stable scene with the star over it and all the uh, hosts gathered there with the, the, the kings, three kings, and all those kind of things. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those things next week. All of that has been added by tradition and is not found in the word of God. In fact, some of those things are completely contrary to that which the Bible reveals. The problem is we've had centuries of this tradition building up and being added to. Uh, and it's quite interesting. Even some of the great Bible commentators fall victim to following these traditional ideas rather than going back and looking at what the Bible says. 
We will uh, review some of these things again in more detail next week. Um, just a couple of the uh, errors, though. Uh, of course, I'm sure you're familiar that Jesus wasn't born on the 25th of December. We think, and there's a number of ways that we can work this out, uh, that the birth of Jesus actually took place in late September and probably about the 29th of September. Uh, it would have been about the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, I suspect it was indeed on that date itself. Um, but it certainly wasn't the 25th of uh, December as we typically celebrate. That doesn't mean we can't celebrate it. We still remember it. Uh, and so, I mean, the Queen has two birthdays. Why can't we you know, use this as a, an opportunity to, to celebrate what God has done in sending his son. So I have no problem with celebrating at this time of year, but we need to be aware as Bible students, Bible scholars, um, that the birth of Christ was actually earlier in the year. It becomes a good talking point with people as well. Of course, the 25th of December was actually a pagan celebration originally called Saturnalia. Um, and of course, it was because this feast already existed that by the time we get to the third century and Christianity is kind of legalized by Emperor Constantine, that the church starts to move into, starts to use the pagan buildings that have been used by the pagans to that point. And what we see is this fusing of pagan ideas and Christianity. So. Many of the feasts and festivals that were celebrated by the pagans then adopt a Christian flavor and they become known as kind of Christian celebrations, although the roots of them uh, were actually in pagan things. So Christmas being one of them, uh, Easter, which actually comes from Ishtar, um, a pagan goddess, uh, all of those things um, have been adopted by Christianity, but they have their roots um, back in uh, pagan Babylon and so on. Now, again, Christians adopted this date, as it was already, this feast, as I said, um, to celebrate the mother and child. Now, that was the other thing that Saturnalia also included. Now, it goes back to Nimrod, uh, back in Genesis chapter 10, this individual, the son of Cush. And, uh, of course, Cush dies, um, uh, also Nimrod dies while he's out hunting one day. Uh, the legend has it he was killed by Shem, Noah's son, because of his iniquity. Uh, Shem was just outraged. Um, but as a result of this, uh, Semiramis, who was the wife of Nimrod, uh, doesn't want to lose her position and her throne. So she concocts this story that she's now going to give, she was pregnant, that she was now going to give birth to Nimrod reincarnated. And so begins this idea of the mother of uh, the worship of the mother and the child. And that pervades all cultures. So even by the time we get to the birth of Jesus, there was this knowledge of the worship of mother and child. So it was very easy to merge the Christian belief and the understanding that we have in, this, in scripture with what the pagans already uh, understood and adopted. So we see a lot of these fusing of ideas. <clears throat> Again, all of that goes back to the religion of ancient Babylon. But that's a, a side issue. So we don't want to get back onto the theme of the shepherds themselves. So, a man by the name of Alfred Endersheim, um, he was a 19th century Jewish scholar who became a Christian. Endersheim highlighted something that's really important that a lot of scholars seem to have missed, and that is that the flocks that were kept on the hills around Bethlehem were not just ordinary sheep. They weren't just sheep that were just typically bred for food or for whatever or for their wool. These sheep had a very specific purpose. And that is that they were destined for temple sacrifice. That was the purpose of these sheep. Bear in mind, Jerusalem was only about eight miles away. And so the sheep that were here, they would have been the same sheep typically, or the, you know, the sheep in that area that David would have tended for 
back in his time as he was out looking after the sheep on the hillsides. It would have been the same area. Uh, of course, those sheep would have died out, but you know, in the same you know, area, the sheep, sheep in the same pastures. But these sheep were specifically for temple sacrifice. And of course, the shepherds keeping watch over these sheep knew very well the intended purpose of the lambs under their care. Now, the really interesting thing is, of course, that their job wasn't like a regular shepherd's job. Their job was to guard and look over these sheep and to make sure that these sheep didn't become injured or have any blemishes because of an injured or blemished sheep could not be offered as a sacrifice. Their job was basically to inspect lambs, to make sure that they were without blemish so that they could be offered in the temple in Jerusalem. This starts to become really fascinating. So it was to those watching over animals destined for temple sacrifice that the angels come and announce Jesus's birth. The arrival of the ultimate Lamb of God was revealed to those responsible for watching over the sacrificial lambs that had always pointed to him in the first place, right the way back in Genesis. Genesis 22, the Akedah, where uh, Isaac and uh, uh, Abraham go up the hill together. And of course, Isaac would have been offered as a sacrifice. God stops Abraham. Uh, he's willing to, to go through to trust God. Uh, and of course, God makes that statement, uh, that, or Abraham makes that statement to Isaac, that God will provide himself a lamb. Of course, at that point, it's actually a ram that then is offered and it's not until we get to John's gospel that John makes that declaration, in a sense, fulfilling that prophetic utterance from Abraham. Behold the Lamb of God that shall take away the sin of the world. When we get to the Passover in Egypt, it was the lambs, the blood of a lamb that was to be shed and put upon the lintels and the doorposts. And it was this uh, acknowledgement that it was the shed blood that was a providing atonement for their sin. Of course, then after uh, they escaped, they left Egypt, the law is given. And particularly the first chapters of Leviticus deal with the sacrificial ordinances, these particularly five offerings. And uh, the, the ones revolving animals obviously all had to be a, a, an animal without blemish, without spot that could be used as an offering and sacrifice. And all of those things pointed to Jesus, who would one day come as the ultimate Lamb of God, offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins. The writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear that the blood of bulls and goats and so on can never take away, uh, never purge the conscience, never take away sin completely. But the blood of Christ cleanses us, not just from sin, but of the conscience itself. So this is the, the picture that's being painted here. Now, in the Jewish Mishnah, we read this. The lambs that were raised in this particular place were particularly special and that they were from a unique flock that was made up of sheep that were des designated to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And in particular, the sacrificial lambs for the Passover sacrifices. And so the men who kept them were specially trained for this task and they were educated in what an animal to be sacrificed had to be like. They were used to inspecting sheep, looking for any blemish and making sure that they were fit for the job in hand. Their job was to make sure that none of the animals were hurt or damaged because they had to be without blemish, again, according to the Torah, the law. And for that reason, these lambs, when they were born, were wrapped in swaddling bands to protect them from injury. 
Now, the swaddling bands themselves were these strips of cloth. What's fascinating to realize is that swaddling bands were actually made out of worn out priestly robes. So when the priestly garments got old and they had to be replaced, these robes would be used, they'd be cut into strips, and they'd be used to wrap around these newborn lambs to protect them so that if they were thrashing around and kicking, they didn't damage or hurt themselves because, again, they had to be without blemish. So, effectively, the clothing of these lambs, the clothing of this babe that was placed in the manger, was priestly garments. I think that's quite fascinating. And so... Being themselves under rabbinical care, these shepherds would maintain a ceremonial clean environment for a birthing place. This was what they had to do because these sheep, again, because they were destined for temple sacrifice, had to be kept ceremonially clean throughout this period of time as well. According to the Talmud, all sheep found in the area, and this is a statement from Jerusalem as far as Migdal Eda, make a note of that, we'll come back to that, which is just on the edge of Bethlehem, were deemed to be holy and consecrated. They were set apart. And they could only be used for sacrifices in the temple. That They weren't for any other purpose. They only had one purpose. The sheep that were born in this area in Bethlehem only had one purpose, and that was to be used as a sacrifice to atone for sin, and particularly in the peace offerings and in the Passover sacrifices. Passover, of course, celebrates that deliverance from bondage and slavery, and the peace offerings, again, just speaks of the peace that we have with God. Now, I just want to read a quote from a man by the name of Harold Smith. He said, Luke's original audience would have immediately picked up on the religious significance of the Bethlehem shepherds watching their flocks by night. Now, you and I miss it because we don't know the history. This is what we're looking at this morning. He goes on and says, Aware of the Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, and the Jewish temple worship of the day, they would have known that when you said Bethlehem, you said sacrificial lambs. The hills around Bethlehem were home to thousands of lambs used in ritual worship in the temple. This isn't just some small thing. I just want to make this point. There were thousands of lambs that were involved. Of course, as a boy from Bethlehem, as we mentioned a moment ago, King David would likely have tended sheep destined for the daily offerings or used in the sacrifices on the high holidays in these very hills. Every day, according to the Torah, two lambs were required for a daily sacrifice in the temple meaning that 730 were needed each year, plus tens of thousands more lambs needed for the Passover, as well as for the other religious rituals. Harris Smith uh, goes on and says, Everyone in Israel recognized Bethlehem as being synonymous with sacrificial lambs. Now do you start to see why Bethlehem, not just why the shepherds, Why Bethlehem? And this is because God had this plan from before the foundation of the world. Let's just go back to that statement that we looked at in Luke 2.19, that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Imagine Mary there having just given birth, and your first visitors are people that come and inspect lambs that are to be offered in sacrifice. That's their job, and they come effectively to inspect this lamb. Jesus Christ that had been born. Now, again, for first century Christians, hearing that Yeshua was born in Bethlehem would have automatically triggered an image of the Lamb 
of God, the Lamb of Yahweh, who takes away the sin of the world. With that in mind, it's easy for us to imagine one of Luke's listeners saying, of course the Lamb of God would originate in Bethlehem. All the lambs for sacrifice came from there. That's a quote again from Harold Smith. Now, I'm sure you're very familiar that in the Old Testament, we have a number of prophecies around the first, surrounding the first coming of Jesus. Micah, uh, the prophet, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied and told us the precise town in which the Messiah would be born. He made it very clear. And it's a scripture that we read every Christmas, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and I'm sure you know it very well. It's, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now we're all familiar with that prophecy. You know, these incredible, uh, this incredible statement that Micah gives, that, that Bethlehem is going to be the location that the Messiah comes from. But were you aware that just a few verses before this, Micah also doesn't only give the town, but the exact location that the Messiah would be born. And this is one of those things where most people are not familiar with the other things that Micah prophesied. All the places to reside in Bethlehem were full from what the Bible reveals. Jesus, we're told, therefore, was born in a manger. Now, Tradition has told us that the innkeeper directed them to his or to a stable and that the shepherds were in the fields around Bethlehem. We know that to be true. And that the angels appeared to announce Jesus' birth, that the Messiah had come. But notice then the angels gave the shepherds a sign. But what's really interesting is they don't give the shepherds any directions. Now, there could have been anything up to 10,000 people dwelling in Bethlehem at that time. That's an awful lot of doors to go and knock on, a lot of places to go hunting trying to find a baby. But we're told they're given a sign. This is what scripture actually says in Luke 2 verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now, the swaddling clothes straight away for the shepherds would have been a giveaway. That would have only meant one thing to them. But the other statement here is interesting, that you should find a babe, very specific, lying in the manger. That's actually what the Greek implies. It's not any old manger. It's the manger. It's a specific location. Clearly, the, the, the shepherds understood it because they go to the right place. So they understood from this the exact location that they were to go to. So thus, a babe lying in the manger itself would be that which would confirm the words of the angel. So they would go to this place, the, the, the clue was in what they'd been told, and when they get there, everything the angels had said would be confirmed. And the fact that they would find this babe in this place would confirm everything they'd said about this one who's going to bring peace and goodwill towards men. The Saviour is being born. There was something significant about this manger, clearly. And by the way, if you've noticed, there is no mention of a stable. Now, I'm really sorry if you've already bought your Christmas cards and they've got stables on them, but there is no mention of a stable in the Bible. It doesn't exist, not scripturally. Now, the shepherds were fearful and afraid, which we can understand. And no doubt just a little bemused at these angels arriving and this incredible uh, scene that's uh, pictured for us. 
And again, we read the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So again, just confirmation, everything the angels have said, they get there and they are amazed at what they see. Now, why would just seeing a baby in a stable next to an inn cause such overwhelming joy? Well, there's far more to it. And as I've said, there was no stable from a biblical perspective. That's just something that tradition has added unhelpfully. Let's uh, build on this. The other thing, of course, is that there is no guarantee the inn itself. Now, we'll talk about this in a second. And there may not have even been an innkeeper. Um, let's just look at this. The word translated in is actually properly uh, translated guest chamber. Now, it might be in. It might be that. It might be, as we would think of it, in somewhere where you could go and you could pay and get a board and lodging and so on. That might be the case. But more likely, the word, as I say, could be translated as guest chamber, that it was probably an annex that had been built onto the family home. Now, just think about it logically. Mary and Joseph have traveled down from Nazareth. Mary's heavily pregnant. They know this family residing in Bethlehem. That's why they're going back there, because they've come. That was their, their hometown, effectively. Where would they go? Where would you go if you went to your hometown? You'd go to your relatives. That's what I believe that they did. And when they get there, they're not let in. So the question is, why wouldn't the family welcome them in if this is the case? Well, firstly, there genuinely might not have been enough room. Because if the rest of the family had already been there, and of course most of them probably would have lived closer to Nazareth, uh, Nazareth um, there's uh, a good possibility that there wasn't genuinely enough space. But even then, you think, but if she's pregnant, surely they'd have done something. Yeah, but then it may have also had to do with the fact that there were ceremonial laws regarding purity. And actually having a woman in the house who was going to give birth would defile the whole house. There was laws of, uh, regarding that, Leviticus 12, Leviticus 15, and so on. So there may have been a concern in regards to that. But probably the biggest reason why they weren't welcome in the house was because when Joseph turns up with his pregnant girlfriend, for the family to invite them into their house would have caused scandal throughout the town. Could you imagine what it would have been like? This religious community effective, effectively, and suddenly Joseph turns up, He's a spouse, they're engaged, but his girlfriend's already pregnant. Mary's already pregnant. So you can start to understand why if they did indeed arrive at the family home, it was like, I'm, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. Starts to make a lot of sense as you start to think about it. Now, of course, tradition has invented Hotel Bethlehem and, of course, an innkeeper uh, who was apparently benevolent enough to allow Mary and Joseph to take shelter in his stable alongside the oxen and the cattle. And, of course, it makes lovely Christmas carols, but unfortunately it's lacking in any truth. Uh, there is none of that recorded for us in Scripture. And in fact, the supposed innkeeper is never mentioned. Now, I'm really sorry if when you were at school you got the part of the innkeeper um, because, of course, the, the, the only famous line of the innkeeper, there is no room in the inn. You know, uh, and now it turns out that the innkeeper didn't even exist. So if you got that part of school and now you find out that the, the part itself is redundant, then I apologize. But the Bible's very clear. There is no mention whatsoever of an innkeeper. And again, nor is there mention of a stable. Back into Luke chapter 2, we read verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Again, because there was no room for them in the inn or the guest chambers we've already commented. 
So, because there was no room for them in the inn, Luke tells us that she gave birth, wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Now, they are the only clues we're given as to location, but those clues were clearly enough for the shepherds to understand where to go. Because when the shepherds returned, glorifying God, praising, uh, praising God for all the things they had seen, heard and seen as it was told unto them. So again, what was it that made the shepherds so ecstatic because of this? And then why go and tell everybody? Well, clearly something had really moved them. Well, I believe that the shepherds themselves started to connect the dots. uh, And it was what they were told. It was what they saw. And it was where they saw it. Okay, so let's go back to Micah. And let's look at the other prophecy, which doesn't get as much press, unfortunately. Uh, and see what Micah said about the exact location. In Micah chapter 4, verse 8, which is only about seven verses before the verse 2 of chapter 5, we read this, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. What an incredible statement. This is talking about the first coming of the Messiah. When Jesus comes, the, the dominion, the kingdom, it's going to come to thee. And it specifically states, O tower of the flock. It may not mean a huge amount to you and I on the surface, but as we dig in, we actually find that the Hebrew phrase for tower of the flock is actually this place, Migdal Eder. It's not random. It's a very specific location. It's right on the edge of Bethlehem. It actually refers to a particular tower that was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem, again, to protect the city. The name means watchtower of the flock. It was a place where they would look out. They would uh, obviously protect, try and protect the sheep from thieves and from um, predators and so on. It would be a lookout tower for them. And there's several towers are recorded in scripture of this type. You actually find them alluded to in Judges chapter 8, chapter 9, and so on. Uh, 2 Kings 9 and 18, also in Nehemiah, there's mentions of these type of towers. They weren't uncommon, but the one we're interested in is this one on the edge of Bethlehem. Uh, Rabbi Short makes this statement. He said, This Migdal Eder was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. And this is really interesting. Well, look at the details in a second about exactly the location in regard to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. But Migdalida is also mentioned in the Jewish Targums, and it's translated there, the anointed one of the flock of Israel, which is provocative in itself. Now, we actually have mention of this tower all the way back in Genesis 35. If you remember the situation as Jacob has left and fled from being under the um, um, uh, oppression of Laban, he leaves with his wives and his family and all his children, uh, his 12 sons and so on and the daughters. Uh, And en route, Rachel dies, partly because she'd taken the household gods of Laban and so on. Uh, That curse had been placed upon her. Verse 19 of Genesis 35 reads, And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. Right on the border, effectively, is where Rachel dies. And you'll see that her tomb is there to this day. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave 
that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. Now, this is the same place. Migdal Edar, this is the tower that was clearly built in the days of Jacob and remained up until the time of the shepherds. The tower would have looked something very much like that. That is an example of one of these towers. That's the kind of thing. If you look at it on a map, you see right at the top of the map there is the uh, Ramat Rachel. That's the grave, the tomb of Rachel. Um, the yellow line that's coming down is the main road into Bethlehem. Jerusalem would be at the north top of the map. In Bethlehem, you can see right at the bottom, there's a little dot. That's where Bethlehem, the town center effectively is. But this is right on the edge of the town. And the blue dot is where the tower is. Well, what that means is that as Joseph was leading Mary and the donkey into uh, Bethlehem, they would have passed right by the side of this tower. A tower that had been kept clean because it had been used for obviously the birthing of lambs and had to be kept ceremonially clean. It was a place that had been away from the ravages of the cold night air. Now, if you've gone into the town and you can't find anywhere to stay, what would you do with a pregnant wife? You're not going to hunt around to try and find another location if you know there's already a good one that already exists. You've just walked past only a few minutes walk outside the town. Well, this tower of the flock, as I said, was built as a watchtower to be used by the shepherds, as you said, for protection from robbers and wild animals. And given the significance of the sheep around Bethlehem, as we said already, destined for temple sacrifice, it was an important lookout to guard against trouble. But as we said, it served this dual purpose. During the season, the sheep were brought to the tower from the fields and the lower levels functioned as the birthing room for sacrificial lambs. Being themselves, and again, a special rabbinical care, the shepherds would maintain this ceremonial clean birthing place. Now, once birthed, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in a hewn depression of limestone rocks, this smooth gouge out of the rock, and this particular thing was known as and referred to as the manger. This is what the shepherds referred to it as. That's what they called it. So that's no surprise then that when the angels appear and say that they're going to find a babe lying in the manger, they don't need any further directions because they know exactly where this place is. And again, typically in their you know, course of their work, they would wrap the newborn lambs in these swaddling clothes. Again, these priestly garments preventing them from thrashing about harming themselves, obviously until they calmed down, so they could be inspected for the quality of being without spot or blemish. Now that is a quote from uh, Jewish old tradition and Alfred Endersheim um, from a book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. So there was no need for the angels to give the shepherds directions to the birthplace because they already knew it. These were the men who raised sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple and that were birthed birthed and laid in a manger, this manger, and wrapped in swaddling bands at Migdal Ida. When the angelic announcement came, they knew exactly where to go. They would also no doubt be aware of the prophecy from Micah, that the Messiah would make his appearance to Israel at their tower. They would have been excited to think that this tower that had been prophesied hundreds of years before was the location that the Messiah was apparently going to make an appearance at. So when angels appear and give these shepherds this news, they are overwhelmed with excitement because that which had been prophesied seems to have just taken place in their midst. Now again, as Luke 2 indicates, the sign of the manger 
could only mean the manger at the base of the Tower of the Flock, as it's found in the original Greek wording of Luke 2, um, verses uh, 7, 12, and 16. And you can't explain the meaning or direction of the sign that they were given, or their response, unless you've got the right manger, the right shepherds, and that proper Hebraic perspective, understanding the Jewish mindset regarding these things. So when there was no room for them at this guest chamber, this inn, family room, annex on the house, Joseph had to find shelter and a place for Mary to give birth. As I said already, on their route into Bethlehem, they'd have come right past this tower of the flock. And it seems to be that to this place, Joseph takes Mary. And it was in this special place, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah, that Jesus is born. Prophetically, Migdalena, or the Tower of the Flock, is the exact place in Bethlehem for Christ to be born. God, of course, was faithful in assuring Israel that he will fulfill his promises to them of the kingdom. Prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, that an, uh, as it was an early Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, that of all the places in Israel, it would be the Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock in Bethlehem, where the arrival of the Messiah would first be declared. Again, that scripture, O thou, the tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of the Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, which is just an interesting statement itself. It implies there's two when you have the first one, at least at least one anyway, at least, at least, at least more than one. Uh, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Warren Wisby, in his commentary, makes this statement. He says, as the pregnant woman must deliver the child, so Judah must be taken captive to Babylon. This is looking at the context of Micah's prophecy. It would be a time of pain, but it would eventually bring blessing. God's, uh, God promised to deliver them and restore them. And Micah uses the prophecy of the Babylonian captivity of Judah as a pledge to guarantee the birth of Christ at Migdal Eder, at Bethlehem, which is exactly where it took place. What he's saying is that of course, Israel went into captivity in Babylon, and it was like being uh, going through the labor pains. But of course, there would be joy later as they would come back to their own uh, home. Now, in Babylon, whilst they're in captivity, Micah gives them this prophecy, and it's to encourage them to say that, you know what, just as the, you're going to be delivered, so the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come to this very place. Wisby continues and says, Micah prophesied that as surely as the Babylonians would soon carry away Judah in the north, so the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And here, Micah pledges that as surely as Babylon would carry away Israel into captivity, so the Messiah would arrive at the Tower of the Flock. And of course, Micah goes on with the prophecy in chapter 5, the verse we read a little while ago. In another book, Why a Manger, by Bodie and Brock, um, uh, Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock, was the place where lambs destined for the temple were born and raised. Every firstborn male lamb from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy, set aside for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Generations of hereditary shepherds tended the sacred flocks. Notice the statement. Every firstborn male lamb from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy. What an incredible statement. I don't know about you. I just get so excited with these things. You see God's design in all of this. So why shepherds? Well, these shepherds' role was to inspect the lambs to be used as sacrificial offerings. They were chosen to inspect and confirm that the baby lying in their manger was indeed without blemish. This was the purpose of Christ's first coming. John 1 verse 29 tells us, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, this is the ultimate Christmas present. It's the greatest gift that has ever been given to the world. God's son given as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, born in the town of the sacrificial lambs, inspected by the very shepherds who would approve the lambs to be offered in Jerusalem to atone for sin, laid in the very manger, their manger, and wrapped in swaddling bands to prevent any any blemish. Now wonder Mary pondered these things. Of course, he is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. I hope that is an encouragement to you in God's complete design and plan in all of these things. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning that we can look at these things, we can see that there are no meaningless details in your word. And whilst tradition has obfuscated so much, Lord, we are not left without light. We're not left without the truth. And Father, we are grateful to those that have been diligent in their study. We're, Lord, grateful for your word that reveals to us the exact location as well as the exact town that Jesus, that you, as our Messiah, would be born. We thank you, Lord, for what you accomplished. We thank you that you came. We thank you, Lord, that not only you came the first time to pay for our sin, but you are coming again to establish and set up your kingdom, to rule and reign on the throne of David, the rightful king. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Strengthen and bless our hearts now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.